Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Technicari. And on this one is a, I guess, the most special one yet. Um, we're joined by Eddie Cross, former member of the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe's Monetary Policy Committee, and he's graciously come to discuss, you know, the recent launch of the $50 note, among other things. Uh, Eddie, how are you? Yeah, I'm fine, thanks. Valentine, good to be with you. Good, good that you're here. Um, so let's just jump into it. Um, the $50 note. Uh, it was, I think you, you were the one who broke the news, was it, earlier this year, saying that we're going to have a $50 uh, note, 100 and 200 uh, of which the bank then said the 50 was coming. Um, what have you made it so far, made of it so far? Well, you know, when I joined the Monetary Policy Committee in September 2019, I think it's right here, we only had about 400 million RTGS dollars in circulation in the form of banknotes. Mm. Um, that was in the form of $80 million of coins and the balance, $320 million, I think in $2 dollars, $2 and $5 notes. Mm. And that represented about, about 5% of money supply in, in what we call M0. I said to the bank, what would they normally expect to have circulating in the form of liquid cash? And they said around about, probably around about uh, 10 to, to 12% of total money supply. And uh, I asked them what their plans were uh, to, to basically try and get the local currency into circulation as quickly as possible. And um, we then at that stage um, agreed on a program over the next uh, couple of years uh, to increase the, the volume of cash, which was available for transaction purposes. Mm-hmm. And, and at the same time to increase the size of denominations. And uh, the, the danger at that point was that if we did issue a new banknote, people would hark back to the days of Gideon Gorno when he was printing cash literally in uncontrolled volume and was issuing this cash as real money into the marketplace mm. with the consequence that the, the currency collapsed. In fact, uh, it was destroyed by that activity. Mm. And we had massive inflation um, and we were forced eventually to abandon the local currency altogether. Um, the The difficulty then was to persuade the authorities that we could avoid that, that, that those pitfalls and, and introduce these new currency notes in such a way as to not involve, not in, increase the volume of cash available in the marketplace. And the only way to do that was to print the new notes and to sell them at full face value to, to the marketplace. Um, so, I, at that stage, we agreed on a program, and I think the 10, 20, and now $50 notes were the result of that. Hmm. The, the problem um, with, with that was to then get the authorities to approve this. And as these notes have to be approved by the president personally, that's constitutional. Hmm. And it's taken a long time to get these notes uh, contracted, designed, approved, and now issued. So this is this $50 note is only the third stage in that program. Mm. 
already we now have, I think the last figure I saw was something close to $3 billion of cash in circulation. So we've, we've allowed, we've, we've been able to increase the, the paper currency in circulation by at least fivefold in the past um, two years. And that process will continue. I, I'm sure the $100 bill is in the, in, in, in the pipeline. And I'm sure ultimately the 200 million, $200 will, will emerge. I think everybody wants to note that a currency like the yen, which is exactly the same as the Zimbabwe dollar, it's worth about 100 to 1. Mm. The top bill, the top currency note there is 10,000 yen. So we've got a long way to go before we get to the point where we have reasonably valued uh, currency notes in circulation. I see. I see. So um, I guess my question is kind of a retrospective. My next question, um, since you've been around um, Zimbabwe's monetary policy and economics and in various capacities for a while, um, what have you seen of, over your time and your experience um, with the policy changes, you know, pre-Zimbabwe um, and then Zimbabwe in the 80s, 90s, 2000s, etc.? Well, at the time when I lived in 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 in, Zim, in Rhodesia, as it was before independence, I was working as an economist, but I was working in the field of agricultural commodities. I was really more in the commodity trading business than in the economic business. Although I did take a, a sort of peripheral interest in, in 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 economic policy and monetary policy and so on, but it was just as an, as a as a bystander. Hmm. Um, and, uh, I never quite appreciated just how competent those guys were. Um, we had an outstanding team at the Reserve Bank. And, uh, and on top of that, we had uh, very conservative monetary and fiscal policies in government itself with significant discipline. When I first started work after I left school in 1957, um, my salary was paid out to me in pounds mm. and the Rhodesian pound was worth two pounds 40 of the British pound. Uh, when I went into independence, the Zimbabwe dollar was worth two to one against the US dollar. So I think the new generation, which is now growing up around us, has to recognize that the, the fiscal and monetary policies of the pre-independence regime were, in fact, highly conservative and, in fact, in my view, overvalued the Zimbabwe dollar, the Rhodesian dollar. In my view, it would have been much more profitable for us as a nation to have built up foreign currency reserves by buying foreign currency off the market and forcing the rate to depreciate. In other words, I think we should have rather targeted at one to one or something like that. But having a currency at two to one automatically meant that only our primary commodities, tobacco, maize, um, you know, the, the, the usual things that we, we trade internationally were able actually to survive in the marketplace. We were not competitive regionally. Mm-hmm. We were not competitive internationally. So we were unable to build up our industrial sector on an export basis and our, expo- our, our domestic our domestic industry was totally predicated on the domestic market where they were highly protected 
So we ended up in, in an independence with a very inefficient and uncompetitive industrial sector, which was about 25% of GDP, a, a highly competitive uh, agricultural uh, industry because they had to compete against the world and trade in a strong currency, which meant that, you know, Zimbabwean farmers had to be absolutely world-class, mm. high yields, very, very efficient to survive. And a mining industry which didn't really reflect its potential. It was significant, but it was not growing. So, um, and I, and I blame that largely on the overvalued currency in, in up to 1980. After 1980, the Zimbabwe government under Chizero <clears throat> virtually followed the same policies and we had an overvalued currency. I mean, right up to 1985, 1995, 1995, the Zimbabwe dollar was still worth more than a US dollar. And it was only after the decisions in 1997 and 1998, our local currency had to be abandoned. That briefly is the history of, of, of the Zimbabwe dollar. Interesting. And with your experience and, and, and the years you spent and invested in, in economics, what do you make of the state of the economy now? I'm very excited. I really am. Um, I mean, I can tell you, uh, I had a meeting the other day with, with an organization called the YPO, Young Presidents Organization. And these are 50-odd young people, what I call the third generation. They're not my generation. They're not my own children's generation. They are the grandsons, grandchildren of, of, of the, the people who started either independence at independence or really were in the Rhodesian economy. Mm. And, uh, and this, this third generation that's emerging now, they are so exciting. I tell you. And um, they are really making things happen here. I mean, this, this more, yesterday morning, I got up at early at about half past five and I went in to have a, my first inoculation for COVID. I was staying in a queue of about 200, 250 people at Paranyatra Hospital. And in front of me was a young man, 32, 33, something about that, dressed in a pair of jeans and, and tackies and uh, a, a, a t-shirt and, and, and a jersey. And I asked him casually, what do you do? He said, I'm in horticulture. So I said, in, in what form? He said, he said, I grow seedlings. I'm, 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 I run a nursery. Then transpired, he has on average 2 million seedlings in production in a nursery. And he supplies the horticulture industry, people who grow vegetables. And I said to him, well, that's amazing. Um, <clears throat> you know, what kind of what kind of knowledge you had? He said, "I'm my my background, my degree is in business studies. I employ people who've got horticultural qualifications." And I was just blown away. Here's this guy standing in front of me, running a big business mm. in Harare, young, 32, 33, you know, and and it's so exciting. And um, <clears throat> I see the economy growing at the moment very rapidly. Um, 
We started this year out where the IMF said we were likely to see 2.7% growth. Now they say 6%. Mm. The World Bank, 0.4. Tuli said 7.4. I have been saying since March that we'll be 10, 12% minimum. Mm. And um, everybody looks at me and think, you know, I, I look at the economy with rose-tinted glasses. Not so. Have a look at what, what's going on right now. First of all, commodity prices are rising strongly across the world. Mm. So if you look at the PMGs, uh, palladium is now worth more than platinum in the PMGs. There are other com- components in the PMG family of, of minerals which have risen three, four hundred percent in value in the last 18 months. Gold is at record levels. Copper is at approaching record levels. Nickel's gone off, off the screen. Um, and, and, and I see this commodity boom that's tell this, what they call the commodity cycle upturn at this moment of time, catching us at a time when our own domestic producers are in fact for the first time willing to invest in productive capacity. Hmm. So Zimplatz is in, investing right now $5 billion into, into new mines. And I'm quite sure that Anglo-American is following. I'm sure Unkis can't be in that place. You look at our gold industry. Our gold production is rising strongly. It's not reflected in official purchases because most of it's being smuggled out of the country. Hmm. But there, you look at, you look at the results for Covimba in the short 18 months or so it's been running. You, you know, you look across the commodity markets and prices are rising strongly in every sector. Look at, look at cotton. Cotton is at unparalleled rates at the moment. And we just so happen to have doubled the cotton crop in the country. So agriculture is going to double the contribution it made last year. It's not going to go up by 50%. It's going to double. That will involve an injection into the domestic economy in this winter of about 100 billion RTGS dollars. Then you take the mining industry. Mineral exports at the moment are rising at about 20% per annum. Very strong growth. Especially given the background that it takes a long time to bring new mines into production. Mm. You look at, look at commodity exports. At least no, mineral, uh, 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 industrial exports. Industrial exports up 100% this year, over last year. Mm. And you look at the building boom. I don't know where the stuff is going, but we're, we're manufacturing 12, 4 million tons of cement a year. And right now, you can't buy a bag of cement. It's all being allocated. There's a three-month waiting list on, on bricks. There's a shortage of steel. I talked to the managing director of Sambisa Brands the other day, who's one of my third-generation heroes. You know, 37 years of age, young, well-educated, been in the diaspora, come home. Now he's chief executive of Sambisa Brands, one of the biggest companies in the country. They're opening two restaurants a week, and they cannot buy enough product. They say their suppliers are maxed out. Now, you know, where's the pessimism coming from? On, I was on the line the other day with 120 industrial firms at CZI. It was a quarterly review. Hmm. And firm after firm said on the line that they were finding it difficult to meet demand. Exporters were saying they cannot meet demand for exports. Um, 
you know, my, my big fear is that this surge in domestic demand is going to lead to, to higher inflation. We saw that already this past month, June, mm. when inflation rose quite significantly. And there are inflationary pressures in the economy, and I think that's one of the big threats. But the other threat is our failure to be able to provide the, the wherewithal to meet this growth in demand. Just take the banking sector. Our banking sector, after two bouts of hyperinflation, is broke, you know. But I'm very encouraged. I looked at the results of, of um, CBZ the other day. Excellent results. Mm. Um, Sandbeck, excellent results. Um, so I think we are getting out of the hole on financial side. But the other thing, big concern for me in the last two weeks has been electricity. I don't know what's wrong with Zessa, but um, we've lost 900 megawatts at Wanky. Yesterday, the Wanky was producing 150 megawatts with 900 megawatts of installed capacity. And they say it's not recoverable. It'll be next year they'll open up the two new turbines at 300 each. That's another 600. But we've lost 900. We're no better off. So electricity shortages are going to be with us for some time. And the problem is the lead time on a hydro scheme is 10 years. On a thermal power station, it's three to five. You know, how are we going to respond to this? South Africa is likewise. In the old days, in in the Rhodesian days, when we ran short of power here, we just imported from South Africa. They had a 20%, 30% surplus of installed capacity. It's all cheap electricity based on coal. We just bought from South Africa. You can't do that now. South Africa itself is short of 15,000 megawatts. So I see power as being a major inhibitor going forward. But uh, but I'm excited. I, we, you, you know we're creating 10,000 jobs a month. I didn't know that. Mm-hmm. And and why is that sort of statistic not being publicized? I think we shoot ourselves in the head sometimes. <laughs> well, the thing is, I think it's, it's, I like that you mentioned um, that you can't buy a, a bag of cement or, you know, there's a waiting list for bricks and all that. Um, and I like that you reflected on the fact that at, at the big companies are doing really well because demand is high because people want these goods and services. But on general, the generality on the streets or my at least impression of, of the people I encounter every day, it's, there is, there isn't that much excitement, to be honest. Um, people are, are, they seem to think the stronger your currency is, the better. And most of us feel like we're in a tailspin on a, on a, on a personal level, like, you know, from person to person. So besides what you've mentioned, what else are you optimistic about that, you know, Zimbabweans can look at and be like, in the future, we might be able to go back to where we were before? The one thing I, I'm afraid you, you, we've got to say to people is you cannot create prosperity out of nothing. You can't manufacture it. And when Robert Mugabe, you know, when, when, when ZANU-PF took control in 2013 after three and a half years of sanity. They immediately went back to the old practices. Mm. And immediately we had, you know, he shoved up salaries. He started spending more than they were earning. We know, remember, remember BT saying, we eat what we kill. Mm. What he's essentially saying is we run a cash budget. That's exactly what Mtuli is doing now. And the problem with that kind of tough love it means that you've got to generate, you've got to create the wealth before you can spend it. 
And by 2017, when the new um, dispensation came to power, the situation was that we had 23,000 million U.S. dollars in our bank accounts. We were rich. I was rich. You were rich. And the problem was, you know, Tuli came in, came in, came in, 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 in July 2018, and he looked at this pile, this mountain of U.S. dollars in local currency, and he simply said to us, he said to the country, that's not U.S. dollars. It's electronic dollars. It's a thing called the real-time gross settlement dollar, RTGS dollar. It's fabricated. It's created on a computer. If you took a thousand of those and you took it to the Reserve Bank or took it to anywhere in the world and asked to that to be one thousand U.S. dollars, they would laugh at you. I said at the time, if you took one, if I took one thousand bond notes into the Reserve Bank and demanded one thousand U.S. dollars, and if the Reserve Bank gave me one thousand U.S. dollars, there would be a queue outside the Reserve Bank ten miles long in ten minutes. That was the reality. So what did he do? He had to devalue our currency. So he separated the RTGS dollar, the electronic dollar, which made up 90% of the balances in our accounts from the US dollar. And he allowed the latter to float with the consequence we see today. And uh, the, when when we introduced the auction in 20. 2020, in June 2020, the US dollar was headed for two the for 200 to one against the RTGS, and it clearly was worth more than that. But how much more? We didn't know what the real value of the currency was because there was no market. And and I think what Mtuli's done in the law and and let's give credit to the president because my goodness, these were tough decisions. You know, it's, when you're a when you're a when you're a, a politician, you love dishing out goodies because you you get some sort of puppy love in return. But what these guys did, they said, look, if it's overvalued, let's get it back to a real value. And they took the they took the pain. But the problem was they didn't bear the pain. We bought the bore the pain. Mm-hmm. So the result is that nearly all Zimbabweans were wiped out. We were wiped out in 2008. And we were wiped out again now. And uh, our $23,000 million ended up as about $3.5 billion, around about 15% of its real of its value in 2017. And I think since then, you could probably devalue it by a bit, but not much. Now, that would take a long time to recover from. The other thing was... When we dollarized in, 29, in 2009, a street sweeper in Harare, for some, somehow the municipality in Harare was able to convert salaries in the old currency into U.S. dollars at some sort of artificial exchange rate. I still don't understand how they did that. But the result was that the town clerk of Harare we got a salary of thirty-five thousand U.S. dollars a month, wow. and a street sweeper got a salary of four hundred and fifty U.S. dollars a month. A municipal policeman 
was getting $1,100 a month. Now, a ZRP constable gets 250 or 270 And the minimum wage at Zimbabwe at that stage was 250 So a street sweeper working for the city of Harare got double the minimum wage. The town clerk got a higher salary than the chief executive of Delta Corporation, biggest company on the stock market. So there were some crazy relationships. Civil service was completely over, 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 over remunerated. And it was wonderful. We had a, it was like we were, had Christmas time all the, all the year round. But we've now been brought back to reality and our minimum wage now I think is worth about $75. Now that's one third of what it was in 2013. One third. And I think that basically reflects the situation across the board. Um, so that's going to hurt and it's going to take a long time to rebuild that. But I think the, the message we've got to give to the people of Zimbabwe is that we've got to build it from by real production. And that's a slow, steady process. So we're on the road, um, but we've got a long way to go, a long way to go. We're still one of the poorest countries in the world, but at least now we've turned the corner insofar as our domestic economy is concerned and things are starting to look up. So I just want to reference to something you mentioned earlier. You said 10,000 new jobs being created. Um, is there someone who can give those statistics? NASA. Oh, NASA. Mm-hmm. All right. These, um, are, these, are not, these are not informal sector jobs. It's not an estimate. It's, it's new registrations with NASA. So new it's formal sector. Oh, okay. All right. And, and to, you touched on, on, on the Forex auction um, uh, earlier. Yeah. I wanted to ask, do you think it's a success or has it been a success? Of course it is. The situation we've got now cannot be compared in any way with the situation that existed in June 2020. You know, the, the currency rate has, has basically stabilized at about 85 to 1. Been a little bit of depreciation, but not a great deal. The big problem we face right now is that with a growing economy, we've seen applications for foreign exchange allocations grow from uh, 300 in 20, in, in June 2020 to 1000 a week now. And the financial, financial demands have risen from 15 million in, in June 2020 to 45 million a week now. And we were struggling to meet that demand. So we're in arrears on the auction. Um, I think the only way to resolve that, in fact, is to, is to expand foreign currency inflows. And I think the big salvation there is going to be in the gold sector. The mm. president has authorized changes to the way in which gold is marketed. And um, <clears throat> we're likely to see new buyers come into the market shortly, which will enable us to pay gold producers about 97% or 95% of the spot market in London in cash on the day they deliver their gold. And that is going to stop the the export of gold via smugglers, and it's going to increase gold revenues very substantially. It could be as much as an additional $5 billion a year in new revenues into the country, which is then going to put us solidly into a, a, a foreign currency positive balance situation. And if that happens, 
it's going to transform our whole situation. We're then going to be able to start buying U.S. dollars off the market in order to depreciate our currency. If people don't believe me about that, we already have $1.3 billion of U.S. dollars in our Nostra accounts. We've never had a balance like that. The government has a foreign currency positive balance of about $400 million. We've never had that in the past. We're meeting our foreign currency requirements for all imports 100% from our own domestic resources. Exports are growing and our foreign currency surplus is being maintained, although it's under pressure from the rising demand inside Zimbabwe for raw materials, machinery and equipment, all of which is positive. So I, I think that the auction... Well, the great tragedy for me was when in 2020, when we asked the banking community to start an auction amongst themselves, that they failed to come to the party. Mm-hmm. And, and we had to introduce the auction in its present form, a Dutch auction for foreign exchange. And, and the ex, the, the banks still haven't come to the market. In the right. last 12 months, not a single bank has volunteered to put resources onto the market. It's been the Reserve Bank, the Ministry of Finance, and local Nostra holders, and none of it's been voluntary. Interesting. So, I mean, so yeah. you, you're saying that you, you actually asked the banks to do the, the Forex auction, and they, they, they refused? Right. Okay, interesting. Yeah, yeah. We, we did everything. We stood our heads, and we even int- introduced the, 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 um, the Reuters platform. We got every bank to register. And I was sitting in the Reserve Bank in the trading room on the first day that they started trading, waiting for these guys to start putting bids and, and, and money on the table. And absolutely nothing happened. Interesting. So what, what happened to that first auction? Did it just die or is, is, it, is, is the platform still existing in one shape or form? They're all on the platform. They record about six, about $50 million a, a month. Um, in transactions between themselves. But there's no auction, there's no free market as such. So it's a trader in bank A speaking to a trader in bank B. I've got $15 million, which I want to sell. Will you, do you want it? And uh, at what rate? And uh, and the commission, the commission rates on those internal transactions are three times the rate on the auction. That's the main reason why they do it like that. It's a major part of their 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 financial performance, but so it doesn't is, help us as a country. Yeah, it doesn't. Because I was about to ask, like, why don't they open it up to to the general public or to anyone who wants to to, to come on board? That's the billion dollar question. It really is. Going forward, you know what 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 I've urged the authorities is let's have a roadmap. You know, you we we, we you say we're de-dollarizing. Sure, well, let's let's have a roadmap which says. This is how we're going to do it. These are the steps which we're going to take in the next five years. At the end of this five-year period, this is going to be a normal economy. Mm. In South Africa, look look at Zambia. Let's take a, an example of Zambia. We used to laugh at Zambia. I was in Lusaka the other day. I had 300 US dollars in my pocket cash. I had my card from my bank in Zimbabwe and Nostra card. And... I couldn't even pay a taxi driver in USD. I had to change my US into Kwacha. 
And when I paid for our, our accommodation at the, at the lodge we were staying in, I asked the manager, what will happen? What, what, what currency will this be credited to your account? He said, Quacha. I said, are you happy with that? He said, everybody that works like that. So um, in the normal economy, inflows of foreign exchange like that are automatically converted on the market at the rate for the day or the hour. And you get credited in South Africa. Mining houses don't get credited in USD. They get credited in rand. And that's where we've got to go. And I mean, the yuan is the same. The, the, the yen is the same. And, and, you know, everybody who's, who's trading, they might be trading in US dollars, but they don't get US dollars into their domestic accounts. They get the local currency. It's called monocurry, monocurrency management. But it does mean that somewhere in the middle there, there is a market between the banks. And it is that market which reflects the value of the dollar on any given day. And the, in, in a normal economy, the Reserve Bank would have their trading room watching this. And if they felt that the, the local currency was being overvalued or undervalued, they would intervene. They would either sell U.S. dollars or they would buy U.S. dollars. So, the, for example, the Swiss ambassador the other day told me they are buying U.S. dollars hand over fist to try and soften the Swiss franc to keep their export industries alive. That's exactly what these modern industrial economies do. That's why, that's why the Chinese have the biggest cash reserves in the world. It's because they buy, they, they keep the yuan cheap. So in our case, in Zimbabwe, with the Forex auction, um, you know, we, we thought, well, the assumption was it was going to rein in the parallel market rate. Um, but, you know, the, the rate has still been going awry on, on, the, on, on the streets. Yeah. Um, Yes, let's talk about the parallel market rate. Okay. But we start, when we started the auction, my guess is that 70% of all foreign exchange transactions were being conducted on the parallel market rate. These, these, these traders who operate in the shadowy world of the parallel market were trading in billion, in millions of dollars. And, uh, I remember very well uh, one of my friends who's the chairman of a major ba- major business here in Harare, industrial firm, came to me and said, Eddie, where do I get foreign exchange from? I said, well, here's a name. Operates out of Café Nush um, in Avondale. Um, this is his phone number. Phone him up. So he went in, phoned him up. They met for a cup of coffee. And the guy said to him, well, you know, Mr. So-and-so, how much do you want? And uh, my friend said, I want six million US dollars. So he wrote on a piece of paper. He said, that's my rate. Pushed it across the table. And uh, my friend said, well, wow. He said, that's fine. Um, right. They did the deal. He nearly fell off his chair. And um, <clears throat> went back to his firm. They did the RTGS transfer. The foreign currency was transferred to their, their firm. And they were in business. Today, if you put a million dollars on the table in the informal market, you would find grave difficulty in finding a buyer. Grave difficulty. I have a friend who's a money trader. He tells me that for sums from $10,000 and above, they will pay 138 to one. Hmm. They don't want Nostro. They want cash. So who's buying at those rates? It's the smugglers. 
It's the smugglers. So people who are buying gold, they need cash. Now they buy gold in Zimbabwe at the moment for 60% of its real market value. They then take the gold, they they export it, they smuggle it to South Africa, where it's, where it's refined in a refinery. They then either sell it in South Africa for rand. If they get paid out in rand, they sell the rand in South Africa to a Zimbabwean importer, OK Bazaars, TM Supermarkets, for a premium. Mm-hmm. And then the local the local company, TM, OK Bazaars, pays them out in Zimbabwe in RTGS at a premium. And they take the RTGS and they go back into the market and they buy more U.S. dollars. That's what's happening. Then on top of that, you have these runners. My guess is that 30, 40% of all imports to Zimbabwe are being, are being managed by runners. And, uh, <clears throat> and these runners operate entirely on cash. They, they pay the border some bribes. They don't pay taxes. They don't pay VAT. You get the stuff delivered to your door. Um, uh, it's cheaper than you can import it yourself, mm. but you have to have cash US dollars. And that's where these wild rates are coming from. I see. So you, you mentioned so, um, that, um, yeah. sorry, you mentioned that yeah. um, runners are the biggest part of, of all of this. And in Zimbabwe, I think there's usually someone behind this. So might you know by some chance who, you know, the, the, the biggest players are in the, in the quote unquote parallel market? Oh, Nobody will even tell you. Nobody, nobody will tell you. I mean, I know because my, my, I've had a friend who's a money trader, and I phoned him up. And said, I, I need maybe I need some US dollars converting into into RTGS or something for one purpose or another, mm. or the vice versa. And he gives me a rate, and I can tell you, <clears throat> if I give him cash, the, the RTGS is in my in my current in my bank account before the before I hand over the cash. It's very efficient. On the runner's side, hey, I tell you, these guys are – I talked to a major transporter in Bulawayo, and he said, all our spares are brought in by runners. We cannot compete with them. So I'm not unhappy about um, the parallel market. I, in fact, think that if there is this big premium, you know who's getting the benefit of that? It's the It's the – the guys receiving money from abroad, the remittances. Okay, In my okay. view, remittances are 3 to $4 billion a year. And those people are getting their remittances in cash. Mukuru operates in South Africa. They have 3 million clients in South Africa. Average transfer per month last year was $79 or $69. Anyway, that's $3 billion. It's all in cash. And quite frankly, if, if, if I was a, if I was a, or a guy living here and I got a thousand dollars from my relative in the United States and I took it into the informal sector and I got 1.4, 140,000 RTG for, GS for that, you know, I'd be sitting pretty. And that is where the building boom is coming from. So it's going into the pockets of the right people. And uh, and it is in, that that is why remittances are growing at the moment. It's because the guys remitting money to their relatives are getting phenomenal returns on the cash. 
And if you are a doctor living in the United States, I, in my home in Bulawayo, we had a whole suburb near me, which was being developed by, by, by diaspora people. One of them, a beautiful home being built near me, was a doctor in the UK. And he built this magnificent home. He furnished it, everything. And he was doing it with remittances to Zimbabwe. And he told me, he said, I get a massive return on my, my pounds delivered here in the local currency. And I'm able to build for nothing. You know, so that's where it's coming from. Now, for me, that's all positive. I, I, I don't, the, the reality is, if we put all our foreign exchange on the market in a real auction today, the currency would actually strengthen. That's the reality. 85 would be too weak. And I think we would then have to buy foreign exchange on the market to maintain a weak currency because we need a weak currency. We don't need a strong currency. If you yeah. ask any exporter, ask any exporter, they'll tell you they are not getting a fair price for their foreign exchange. But the reality is, if you look at their books, they're making money. How does... Look, look, just look at look at Zimplatz. On a billion dollar turnover, they made five hundred million U.S. dollars profit. They paid a dividend of two hundred million dollars. Where on earth do you ever see a mining company pulling in those kind of returns? And then you tell me eighty-five to one is is not good enough. And the, they see these huge rates on the informal sector, and they say we want those rates, but those rates are not justified. I don't think so. I don't think they're justified. So I'm mm. I'm not unhappy with the present situation at all. If I was the if I was the governor of the Reserve Bank, I'd be actually quite satisfied with this going forward. What we've got to do is we've got to increase the flow of foreign exchange across the auction. And and there, you know, my I would love to see the banks coming to the party. I'd love to see anybody come to the party. For example, these NGOs are getting paid in foreign exchange. They're paying their staff in foreign exchange, for God's sake. I would like to see them put their money onto the market and and get a sale and then pay their staff in RTGS dollars. Then they're contributing to the national good. But anyway, that's just me talking. Interestingly enough, you mentioned the exchange rate. And I wanted to ask, what, what is your ideal exchange rate for the Zim dollar? I've been told by lots of businessmen they could handle about 100 to 1. Okay. And I, and I think we should allow this, the auction rate to, do, to, to depreciate to that sort of level. I think it's a good thing if we move towards convergence, but uh, let's not sacrifice the welfare of the majority for the benefit of the minority or exporters. Interesting. And, and the way the Reserve Bank has kept it at 85, um, some people think, you know, um, they've, they've um, artificially not, held it there. It's not managed. It's not managed. That's, that rate is driven by the, by the buyers. We've been, we've been cutting applications below 85 now for four weeks, and it hasn't made any difference at all to the bids. Mm. You know, I've got, I've got one friend in, in, in running a major business, and he applies for about half a million U.S. dollars every week, and he's been depreciating his, his, his bids. Uh, he's now at 36.5. Sorry, 86.5 to be safe. Um, other guys are bidding sort of 80, 81, 80, 82. And, and you know, that that's just nonsense. Just, that's just trying to get, get it artificially cheap. Right. We've been cutting those guys 
um, I, I said on, on Tuesday, I thought we ought to cut the guys who were delivering, who were asking for 82, or to cut them off altogether. What we're doing at the moment is cutting them by 50%, and they're still persisting in doing what they're doing. Anyway, that's just one of the things, just management. But, no. but overall, I'm not totally dissatisfied with 85. I think today 85 is not good enough. I think we should actually go, we should go down a bit. I see. So I'm curious, um, what are you saying? It, it kind of feels like you, you still have an, an inroad into the, the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe and, and the you know policy creation um, side of it. Uh, because if, if uh, correct me if I'm wrong, you stepped away from the Monetary Policy Committee earlier this year. I was fired. <laughs> <laughs> I'm too outspoken. Uh, yeah. And, um, I'm, you know, I like my freedom. I like being independent and and I like telling it like it is. Um, and uh, if you're in a, a, a structure like the Monetary Policy Committee, mm. that's a no-no. And I accepted that. And uh, when it was pointed to me that I was being a bit too outspoken, I was happy to retire, resign. And mm. I did. Okay. Um, but we didn't tell the market until some months had gone by that I wasn't there anymore. Even the Reserve Bank didn't know I'd resigned. Really? Yeah. yeah, for a while. For a while, I see. So, what role are you playing now um, in in the in the professional capacity well, or in the country capacity, I should say? I'm a healthy member of the informal sector. Fortunately, <laughs> <laughs> uh, John John Mangudja and uh, Tuli Nubi are personal friends. Tuli and I have been colleagues and friends for. 30 years. So, um, and, and they appreciate, um, tough talk, providing it's based on a fair assessment of the realities. And so I, I, I sit on the, on the, on the committee that, that supervises the auction. Um, and, uh, and, uh, you know, let, let's just say I, I, I'm, I'm an informal advisor to, to, uh, people at authority. So you still play a, a pretty key role in, in, in what happens? No, not really. I'm not a decision maker. I'm a person of influence. I see. It's so earlier on, you said you're very outspoken, but you said um, Professor Matuli likes that as, as well as, as long as it's backed within fact and reason. So yeah, wh- why do they then move to remove you? Uh, if you're if you're in the system itself, and the, the monetary policy authority, remember, is 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 a statutory body which makes decisions. So it is it is a, an institution of power, hmm. and um, and I think the difference between person of influence and a person of power is a person of power makes decisions which affect things. A person hmm. of influence simply advises on what should or should not. They can take my advice or or leave it or do what they like with it. Um, also, they don't have to pay me, so I'm free. <laughs> yeah, free, free, free intellect. Yeah, and I like that. I don't, I don't want to wear, when when Antuli asked me to be an advisor to the Ministry of Finance and offered me a desk job, I said no ways. I don't want to wear a suit. Um, I, want, I want to, I want to burn my suits. I see. So, on, on that note of optimism that you mentioned earlier, like. You are the most unexpected optimist when it comes to the president. Um, I'm, I'm curious why that is. 
I think you know if if a if a if a man starts doing the right things, I think we should start recognizing it. I mean, the president, you know, has made his position very clear. He made it clear after the coup, and he made it clear after the election. He set out a very clear reform agenda. And the tragedy of it was that after the coup, for the next six months, seven months, he didn't really control government. Um, he had a, the, the supporters for the president in the cabinet were a minority. And uh, the military held a disproportionate role. After the election, those anomalies in the government were rectified to a large extent, and he's much more in control. But even so, the resistance to change inside the administration has been massive. And uh, But that has not changed his basic stance. He, his basic stance is that he is a reformer. He, he knows what's got to be done. And he's a fairly effective decision maker. Um, but you, to get a decision out of government, you've often got to go to him uh, for overriding authority or you don't get a decision at all. And yeah. the corrupt elements of the administration have been disproportionately influential. And the problem with regional governments, particularly those in South Africa and Zimbabwe and maybe even Mozambique, is that when you start reforming the corruption in, in your administration, you automatically cut off resources for your own political structures. Um, and both the ZANU and the ANC are struggling to finance themselves for the first time. And that I see as an encouraging sign because it means that the corrupt elements in society, which were essentially, uh, it was state capture writ large. I mean, uh, you know, when the when when the, the those two Asian guys took seven thousand million dollars out of South Africa, I believe they paid ANC very very richly for that. Zuma made a lot of money out of that, um, and it was the same under Mugabe, exactly the same. You know, when Mugabe said that fifteen thousand million dollars had disappeared from Marenki, he didn't tell us that he was one of the principal beneficiaries. But he was, and uh, and Zanu PF likewise. I mean, it, look at 2018; they spent massively. They out they outgunned the opposition, what a hundred to one. And and politics is about money, so it's not been easy. If you have a look at the fact that the, ref, the way he's introduced reform into the gold sector, his family is well known to be a major major player in, in the in the gold industry. And uh, it's not been in his family's direct interests to reform the gold sector, but he's doing it. And he's done the same with diamonds. He did the same with fuel. That's why fuel's in free supply today. That's why Tagurai is no longer a fuel trader. That's Emerson. And um, the auction was Emerson. Uh, he took the decision. And, and, I, and I think that um, we've got to, Give him credit where credit is due. If I can just give you one statistic, which I think is very revealing. Mm. I was in the MDC leadership for 17 years at the top. We had, on average, a member of the MDC leadership abducted every day for 17 years, 4,800 people. 
Since 2017, when Emerson took over government, we've had five abductions. Five. And, and you know, that to me, he's not getting enough recognition for that. Sure, he's had to clamp down. He's, he's, he's no, he's not an angel. He's a tough guy. And that's why, you know, the Chinese have a, have a saying, don't ride the tiger if you're going to fall off because you get eaten. And that's the reality of African leadership. African leadership, you've got to be tough. There's no choice. This is not, this is not, this is not a Sunday school picnic. It's a tough game. And uh, if you can't ride the tiger, then don't get into the game. If you can't stand the heat of the kitchen, don't become a cook. And, uh, you know, sometimes I, I've seen the president occasionally for it for a chat and I mean last year when I saw him I was very concerned he was totally exhausted totally exhausted and much better now he seems to be much more on top of things right now but uh, let's give him credit where credit is due and um, you know he won the 2018 election there's no doubt about that there's no doubt about it he beat Chamisa by 300,000 votes in another month Chamisa would have been would have beaten him he took a huge risk but he beat him. In fact, 2018 was the freest election. The Americans accepted the 2018 election as free and fair. The Americans. Hmm. I have that from the horse's mouth. Okay. So you mentioned uh, Tagure. Uh, what of his growing influence, if we're on the point of, of state capture? His declining influence today. Kuda, at one stage, was a key player. He was put into a position of immense power and influence by Robert Mugabe. I mean, other guys that you can name, Robert Mplanga, same situation. What was Robert Mplanga? Previously, he was a helicopter pilot in the Air, in the Air Zimbabwe. And now, then he was living in a, in a penthouse suite in, in Santon, you know, multi-multi-millionaire. Sam Parr, same. Um, and... Uh, all the people around about Mugabe became enormously wealthy. Chiangwa said, you know, if you want to become a millionaire in Zimbabwe, you join ZANU-PF. And um, what's happened since then is that these institutions of state capture have slowly been dismantled. Um, and, uh, and, and, And Emerson is increasingly putting emphasis on the leadership of the private sector. And one of my concerns today is that the private sector has got to take up that challenge. Mm. If we are going to really, you know, when I remember a key meeting last August when chaired by S.P. Moyo, the late Minister of Foreign Affairs, and uh, a group of us businessmen were called into the meeting to discuss the shortages, shortages of fuel, shortages of mealy meal, shortages of bread, shortages of, of, of cooking oil. And there were six ministers in the meeting with about seven or eight permanent secretaries and a dozen other senior civil servants. And there was this tiny group of businessmen in the, in the middle. And he turned to us and he said to us, gentlemen, what do you suggest we do? And we said to him, give it to us. We will sort out the supply problems. We will sort out the cash problems. He said, have you got the capacity? We said, yes. He did. Standing there, he said, right, all these short products, five of them, 
we're going to hand them over to the private sector. And from within a month, there were no further shortages in the Zimbabwean economy. Within a month. And, you know, in the past year, we've been importing 120,000 tons of maize a month, 3,000 trucks, heavy 2D trucks across the border every month. There's been no hassles, no crisis, no financial problems. It's the private sector. And, and, and I said to SP Moyo, I, I said before he died, I said, Mr. Minister, I hope you realize the significance of that decision you took back there. And he said, yes, I do. You remember the fuel queues? It was a nightmare. Yeah. Yeah. And that was gone. In, 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 you know, I can remember 2009 when we dollarized. And in 10 days, fuel was in free supply. That's the private sector. Yeah. Government can't do it. We can. Yeah. Now let's get on. Let's develop the country. That's the challenge. Yeah. And, uh, I think we'll conclude with just a quick fire round. I just want your take on, on, on three questions, actually four. Um, you can answer as brief as, 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 as you'd like. Um, what do you think of EcoCash as a currency? They need competition. <laughs> okay. Uh, so yeah, come COVID. on, you guys, you, you young guys, come <laughs> on, come on, get into the game. Strive, strive rich enough. We need to we need to knock his socks off. Come on, but let's do it private sector wise. Start a new system. You know, in 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 in, in Kenya, the cost of those sort of services is a fraction of what it is here. It's ludicrous. Mm. We need a competition. Yeah, I, I agree on that. I think Ikesh does need a stiffer competition. Second question is COVID and the economy. Uh, what happens if COVID gets worse? Get inoculated. Go and get vaccine. It's painless. It's great. I went yesterday morning, queued for two and a half hours. Pretty girl gave me a shot in the arm. Gee, come on, guys. It's flu. Go and get your jab. No crisis. Look at Britain. 70% inoculated. All restrictions gone. Look at Wembley yesterday. Yeah. Fantastic. Did you watch it? Yeah, I watched it. Oh. Wonderful. I think it's finally coming home after 66. Yeah. Maybe. Uh, maybe. Second to last question. Uh, so statutory instrument 127 of 2021 has been masterized. So what is its impact intended versus, you know, the actual? Blunt instrument. Mm. Unnecessary. Mm. Shouldn't have been published. Wasn't enough consultation beforehand. It was misunderstood when it was introduced. It's uh, it's now being uh, managed by being ignored, but it's we have a we have a culture here of issuing special you know SIs for, to address every problem. It's not necessary. If we're going to have a market driven economy, leave it to the market. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, just a quick follow up on that one. Um, would the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe put out that this release saying the the SI 127 will now only apply to outliers. Does that mean they've removed it from every business or it's, it's still as, as effect, nothing has changed. Uh, They're saying that it only applies to those firms, which get their foreign exchange from the auction at the auction rate. Hmm. And it requires those firms to actually 
sell their products at the right exchange rate. So, um, um, I mean, I was I was in uh, in pick and pay the other day. We had to buy some stuff. I wanted to pay in U.S. dollars. The manager had to come down and open a tool for me, a special thing, because the rest of the shop was in RTGS. And um, um, and I think and they're charging 85 to one. The guys who are charging 120, 130, 140 uh, are guys who want foreign exchange. They don't want anything else. And uh, and then they're trading the foreign exchange. That's fair enough. Uh, but for ordinary Zimbabweans, it's it it it's a gross it's a gross over overpricing of the of the product in local currency. And those firms that trade on the on the auction, and we know who they are because we see the names every week. We want them now to start selling their goods like pick and pay at eighty five to one. So essentially, everybody else can. You know, as they do, were, as do, they say. Do what you like. Yeah, do what you like, which is what's happening. Okay. And last question, uh, I don't know. Uh, it's, 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 it's one that I've been, um, it's kind of been knowing at the back of my head is cryptocurrencies in the Reserve Bank of Zimbabwe. Uh, I want your personal take on cryptos and may we see cryptos being adopted more widely, uh, cryptos or digital currencies being adopted, uh, on the, you know, uh, RBZ level. The other day I had a chat to the, to the American ambassador. And I said to him, the biggest mistake you'll make is to use your currency as a weapon, as a political weapon in the world. The American dollar is 73% of total cash availability in the world. Hmm. It's one of the biggest industries in the United States. South Africa, the American treasury is one of the biggest contributors to the U.S. Uh, government. And they're putting all of that in jeopardy because Cryptocurrencies are coming. They are already here. At the moment, they're not particularly significant globally. But I'll just give you an example. I bought a car the other day in Japan. Hmm. To buy it, I had to buy a, a million yen in Harari. So I gave my bank the US dollars. They bought the yen for me. It then took my bank three months to pay the Japanese supplier, mm. and it cost me 7%. Now, in a cryptocurrency, I could do that in about 10 seconds without any charges. Maybe it cost me one, maybe it cost me 1%, but that would be at the outside. And, and that is coming. It doesn't matter what the Reserve Bank says. This is completely out of control out of anybody's control. The other, about last year, the UAE wanted to introduce a cryptocurrency for international transactions backed by its wealth fund. And they, the American government, threatened them with sanctions. But that kind of bullying is not going to change the reality. We are going to be able to transfer money quickly and cheaply and effectively in the near future. And I, I think the sooner it happens, the better. The big problem for reserve banks around the world and for governments is that this then gives individuals with wealth complete freedom, freedom to move their money wherever they want it, free to follow their noses. It, and it remove, All exchange control becomes meaningless. As far as governments are concerned, 
you know, it, it completely removes any controls at all. I mean, one of the reasons why the American government was able to dismantle the corruption in FIFA was because every U.S. dollar transaction was known to the American government. Everyone. Do you think Mugabe had any secrets? Do you think the Americans don't know where his money is held? Of course they know. They know where every dollar is. And uh, that is going to be a thing of the past very, very soon. Very soon. And, and I think that is, for me, that's the future. And we shouldn't fear it. We should actually welcome it. We should embrace it. We should manage it. Yeah, we should. Eddie, thank you very much for your time. Uh, this was a very enlightening conversation. Thanks, Valentine. Thank you very much for the chance to talk to you. Thank you. And thank you for listening. And we'll be, we'll, we'll be back very soon, I guess. Cheers. Okay. Ciao.